0: Listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell. Obviously, this is our Sunday morning service, so we we are doing a message this morning. It will be themed kind of on the the subject of dedication, but obviously the principles are going to be much more broad. The way I want to look at it this morning is to kind of imagine that that I'm having a conversation or speaking to Ellen Ivey when they're in their teens or when they're young women, and we're going to tell them some things about the Christian faith, some of the things that we've done here this morning some things that they may hear in the culture. And from there, we're just going to pick some examples. The message title is Legacies of Faith. So let's pray and get into this this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time. Lord, I thank you for these two girls that we've we've lifted up to you this morning. We pray your hand of blessing upon them, and I ask now that you would use me, Lord, just to open the word of God. In Jesus' name and for his sake. Okay, so the theme of dedication... We see it in the Bible a lot. We see it with objects, with buildings, with babies quite often. What it means is that we are setting something apart, or it means that something is being devoted to God. In the context of the Bible, obviously, it's devoted to God. In the book of 1 Samuel, there's a story of a Jewish girl called Hannah, who was childless, and she's found in the temple praying to God for a child. And then we see her later in the narrative, and she she has this child, and she comes back to the temple with this child and she says these words. She says, now I am giving him to the Lord and he will belong to the Lord his whole life and then they worship the Lord in the temple. She gave him back to God. This is, she dedicated him back to God. This is what we're looking at this morning. And I want to really highlight, I'm going to be drawing on examples and I'm going to be using examples of women of faith, obviously because we've had two young girls dedicated. And I really want to show that one life that is dedicated to the Lord can impact this world beyond measure. I'm going to start with a story of a young girl called Mary Jones. If you're from Wales, you may have heard of her. You probably haven't if you're you're anywhere else. The year is 1800 in the rural Welsh countryside. Uh, A young girl grew up in a poor family, no father in the household, just her and her mother in a small stone cottage in the rural landscape of Wales. Every Sunday, this young girl would walk two miles to the local church, and she tells in her narrative she remembers being enthralled with the words of the minister as he read from this big, large leather book that was on the pulpit. Uh, in those days, that was probably the only Bible you know, for miles and miles around. One church, one Bible, that was it. People didn't really have personal Bibles. She remembers going up to the service after the Bible, after the minister had finished, and just looking at the words on the page. Of course, she was illiterate at the time, as most people were in those days. She couldn't read. And she remembers the desire in her heart to learn to read, so that she could read these words for herself. And then one Sunday it was announced that what they call a circulating school. Now a circulating school is was something that was started by Christian missionaries at the time, and they were basically travelling schools, and the purpose of them was to teach people to read and write, and the purpose of that was so that they could read the Bible, so they could get saved. And if you don't know, the two people who started this, two Christians, a man and a woman, they are pretty much held responsible today for making Wales a literate nation. And if you know the history of missionary and Christian missions across the world, that is replicated many times in the world. The reason that much of the Western world is literate is because of this desire to teach people to read the Bible. We don't, we've lost that bit of history, but that is actually the fact of how it started. But anyway, one of these circling schools, circulating schools, was coming to Mary Jones's town. So she would rush through her chores every day. She'd try and get everything finished early and she'd rush over to this school. She taught herself to read so that any spare time she got after that she would trek to the church and she would read that Bible in her spare time. When she was 10, she determined that she needed a copy of the Bible herself. So she set about her village doing every extra job she could, selling eggs, making cheese, sewing for all the neighbours. It took her six years until she'd finally saved enough money to buy that Bible And she heard of a man who had Bibles for sale in a village that was 25 miles away. Now remember at this time you you didn't really travel outside of your village. It was was not safe, it was countryside, you just didn't do it, especially if you're a young girl. But at 16 she took her money, a small bit of food, and she started off on the 50-mile round trip without even any shoes to cover her feet. And she finally made it to this village, exhausted and tired, and she found the house of this minister, Thomas Charles, who had these Bibles. She knocked on the door, told her, told her story, but tragically, all the Bibles had been sold. However, this man was so moved by her determination and her expression of faith that he put her up in his house for three or four days until a new shipment of Bibles arrived, and then he sold her three Bibles for the price of one. And the next morning, she was so eager, she clutched her Bibles, and she rushed off on the 25-mile trip home, and she arrived home to claps and cheers in her village. But this man, Thomas Charles, was so impacted by this young girl and her desire to have a Bible, that he decided how many other young Mary Janes are there in the in the country right now. I have to come up with a way to get Bibles into everyone's hands. And this man, Thomas Charles, founded what's now known today as the Bible Society. You might have heard of the Bible so- Society today. They are a worldwide organization in pretty much every continent. They are responsible for distributing hundreds upon millions of Bibles to this day, that have led to the salvation of millions of souls. All of that because of the faith of one young girl who wanted the word of God, and she, she did this great act and went and got that, that Bible. Now, in Wales, the story of Mary Jones is kind of legendary. There's statues of her in various different places around the, around the country. Um, the Bible Society still have one of these original copies that Mary Jones was given, and she's written her name in it and told the story inside this. You can go and view it at their archives. Now, what is it about this book that would inspire a young girl, a 10-year-old girl, to do something like that? What is it about the God of this book? We're going to come back to that as we go through, but I want to contrast this story for you now with another story. November the 9th, 1938, crystal Nut, the night of broken glass. This is really the precursor to the time, the horrible times that we see, in Germany and Europe, with the Holocaust. On this night, 14,000 synagogues were set on fire across Germany as the German people's hatred for the Jewish people seeped out onto the streets, encouraged by the Nazi party at that time. Now, I'm not going into too much of the details here. One of the often untold elements of this night is the specific hatred that was directed not only towards the people, but quite often towards the book of the people at this time. It was called the Torah... It is basically the Bible. It is the same Old Testament that we have here in our Bibles. Often, during the rioting, the synagogues, they would make a point of taking the scrolls, these Bibles, from the front and they would burn them in the courtyards of the synagogues. Oftentimes, the Hitler youth would take the big, long scrolls and they'd roll them out in the streets and they'd take turns riding their bikes up and down the Word of God. In other parts of Germany, it's recorded that the scrolls were stapled to the back of Jewish men as they had to run down the street as the villagers took turns to rip the Bibles and the scrolls off their back. You can imagine the scene. That was Kristallnacht. Such hatred for the Bible. You see, the Bible has been loved more than any other book in history, and the Bible has been hated more than any other book in history. And the question that we want to look at is why? Why? What is it about this book? You see, history testifies to this reality. What I'm saying there, the Bible is love and the Bible is hatred. It's a fact. You can't deny it. It doesn't matter if you're religious or you're not religious. There is something different about this book. There is no denying that. Now, for Ellen Ivy, and their generation, they grew up in a culture that really pays little attention to this book. You see, it's seen as maybe an outdated, irrelevant text that can't possibly have anything relevant to say to us today. Now, to those girls, I would say nothing really could be further from the truth. The Bible is more relevant today than it has probably ever been. It's always as relevant, but today it speaks to our hearts and our lives, and we still need this book. Now, I could spend a lot of time telling you, and I'm going to guess as these girls grow older, their dads have probably forced them to come to one of my talks when I do whole talks on these subjects about the reliability of the Bible. I could tell you how the Bible is the most influential book in the history of the world. The History Channel recently did a a survey and the Bible was the number one thing that changed the world in their survey. I could tell you that it's the best-selling book. I could tell you that it's the most translated book. I could tell you that it's the most archaeologically confirmed book across the history of the world. I could tell you that it's the best attested ancient manuscript in all of history. We could go in and I could show you its influence in in art, in music, in education, in government, in morality, in law, in politics, in charity, in healthcare, in social reform, and the greater sanctity of life that we have in the Western world. All of that is influenced by the Bible. It permeates every layer of our social fabric. That is history. You cannot deny it. Most people don't know these things because we don't teach it. But that is reality. But more importantly than those things, millions of people from every nation on the earth testify to the life-changing power of the word of God as they encounter it in their lives. Now if this is true, and it is true, why do we see such hatred towards it? Why has the Bible been banned and burned more than any other book? Why is the Bible still illegal in many parts of the world today? Owning a Bible in parts of the world today will get you sent to prison. Why is that? This is the question we need to think about. Well, We have the answer to this. It's written in the pages of that book. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. All scripture is breathed out by God. The Bible is different because it comes from God. It comes from God and it was written by men in one sense too, but it is literally breathed out by God. It proves to be different in history because it is different. I know other books claim these sorts of things. But other books don't have the history to back it up, and they don't have the testimony that the Bible has. You see, the Bible is described as being living and active. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active. And what that means, that it is out in the world doing its work. And God promises where the word of God goes forth, it will not return void It makes a difference. And again, that's not just me, a Christian, saying that. History proves this. It's undeniable. Everywhere the message of the Bible goes, it changes cultures, nations, and peoples, always in the greater direction of social change, in an upwards direction. History testifies to this. It is undeniable. So what is the message of the Bible? John 5.39, Jesus is really telling the Pharisees this same question. He says you search these scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. This is what the religious people, we see religious people doing this today. They think because they're attending church or going to uh, the right ceremonies that somehow this confers some sort of spiritual benefit on them. The Pharisees in Jesus' day, the religious party of Jesus' day, did that same thing. And he's correcting them here, and he's saying, you're wrong. It's not that doing these things or reading this book or being an expert in it will give you the eternal life. He goes on to say... It is they that bear witness about me. Okay? So it's not the scriptures themselves, it's the one that the scriptures are pointing people to. And they are pointing to Jesus Christ. You see, the word of God bears witness and reveals the person of Jesus Christ. And that is why, wherever the message of the gospel goes, it brings life. Because Jesus is life. The theologian Sidlow Baxter put it like this. He says, fundamentally, our Lord's message was himself. He did not come merely to preach a gospel, he himself is that gospel. He did not come merely to give bread, he said, I am the bread. He did not come merely to shed light, he said, I am the light. And he did not come merely to show the door, he said, I am the door. He did not come merely to to name a shepherd, he said, I am the shepherd. He did not come merely to point the way, he said, I am the way, the truth and the life. Jesus is life and he is the message of the book and that is why we see when the word of God goes into nations it brings transformation and life. The the president of the American Historical Society, he says, as centuries pass, the evidence is accumulating that measured by his effect on history, Jesus is the most influential life ever lived on this planet. Jesus is life and he is without a doubt the most influential person in history. The Bible is the most influential book in history because its message is Jesus and Jesus is the most influential person in history. And again, that's not my opinion. Ranker.com is a new website where you can rank and find out, they do kind of online surveys and you can do all this sort of stuff. I went on there just yesterday. Jesus is still listed, as voted for by the people, as the most influential person on history. Do a Google search, you'll find hundreds of people, magazines and all sorts of things have done these surveys over the years. Jesus is always in the top three, if not number one for most of them. He is the most influential person in history. So I find it so funny when you get these articles around Easter time, usually claiming that he didn't exist. We'll, we'll, we'll pick up this in a little bit more. You see, the message of Jesus causes, uh, causes upward social change in the direction of greater morality and sanctity of life. But it does this not by social revolution. It's not a manifesto, it's not a communist manifesto urging people to to overthrow governments and wicked powers. It doesn't work like that. That's not what God came to do. It does affect social change, but it doesn't do it by causing revolution, it does it by causing personal transformation. Because societies, nations and governments are made up of people, and you change the people's hearts and you change the culture. That is how Jesus did it. That's why you see these objections from atheists. Why doesn't the Bible condemn the slavery? Why does it kind of seem to accept it in the culture? That's why. If it was a book of social revolution and it wanted to try and get rid of slavery, it would have said that and it probably would have got stopped quite quickly by the Roman government. But the word of God, the message of the gospel, changed people's hearts and then those changed hearts changed cultures. That was true since the first century and it's true today in our century you see, when people's hearts are changed by the Word of God, when their faith is placed in the gospel of this life giving source, Jesus, this is when we have the Kingdom of Heaven. If you've been in a Christian kind of culture, you've probably heard that term, the Kingdom of Heaven. What it means, it's a Kingdom of Light. And when people get saved, that is a breaking in of the Kingdom of Heaven into a dark world. This is what it means to be salt and light, to stop the decay of a dark world. Let me tell you a story about a girl called Mary Slessor. She was a Victorian mill girl in Dundee, and when she was young she heard the call of God to be a missionary, and she went to Africa to finish the work of a famous missionary called David Livingstone. She lived among the people of Nigeria her entire life, serving them, telling them the gospel, being salt and light in that culture. And one of the things she's known for is stopping the in Nigeria at that time, they used to believe that if twins are, if, if someone gives birth to twins, that was the result of some sort of demonic activity and one of those twins was therefore cursed but yet you never know which one so you kill them both and quite often you kill the mother just to be safe just in case that was a very very common practice Mary Schlesser was one of the people because of her love for Christ the love for Christ for those children she fought that and she did a very good job at outlawing this is what I mean salt and light the gospel changes things if you go to Nigeria today, you'll find statues of Mary Slessor with twins in her arms on various places to honour her. During London Fashion Week in 2010, there were two Nigerian-born designers. For, uh, I won't try and say their names, but they're, they're, they're very famous. They make clothes for you know, Michelle Obama, and anyone who's, who's who in the African-American community generally has clothes from these two fashion designers. In 2010, they named one of the inspirations for one of their fashions as Mary Slessor. Of Mary Slessor. Obviously no one really knew who that was. But what they did is they fused Victorian costumes like Mary used to wear with the, with the tribal um, outfits that, that the tribe used to wear in Nigeria. Now people obviously ask, what's this about? I can tell you London Fashion Week is not generally where you would get Victorian missionaries being talked about too often. But they did that because one of their great grandmothers was a twin who was saved by Mary Slessor. Okay? Legacies of faith. Generation to generation to generation. This is what the word of God does. Now whether it's Mary Slessor, I could tell you of Amy Carmichael, Carmichael spent her life in India rescuing temple children from the Hindu religion. I won't go into that anymore. Gladys Alwood, who went to China and spent her life banning foot binding, foot binding and taking in orphans and various other sorts of things. All of these women, it was their devotion to Christ and a desire to preach the gospel to people who had not heard it, that did these things. You see, even those who do not believe in God, and there are probably some of you here who don't believe in God, can see, if you just study the history of the world, these things happening. The change that the gospel has affected in the world. Let me remind you, I know I've read this with our congregation before, but let me briefly read to you the words of the atheist Matthew Paris, writing for The Spectator just last year. He says, before Christmas I returned after 45 years to Malawi, Malawi, the country of my birth. Um, He says, it's renewed in me my flagging faith for development charities. But it's also um, refreshed another belief, one I've been trying to banish my whole life but an observation I've been unable to avoid since my African childhood. It confounds my ideological beliefs, stubbornly refuses to fit my worldview, and has embarrassed my growing belief that there is no God. Now a confirmed atheist, I've become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa, sharply distinct from the work of secular NGOs, government projects, and international aid. These alone will not do. Education and training will not do. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings a spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real. The change is good. It's an atheist. We can't deny it. You see, let's come back to the question then. If these things are so good, why do we see such hatred? Surely that doesn't make sense. You know, surely you can say, oh, well, it's doing a lot of good. I just don't personally believe it. That's fine. So then why the hatred? Because there's more to this than just a good story. John 12, 46, again, the words of Jesus. He says, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. That's why we see such hatred for the word of God, because it holds men and women accountable to a holy God. It will judge us. You see, on large, we live in rejection of God in the Western world, anyway, at the moment. You see, we've rejected the gospel. And unless we have been forgiven by the gospel, we will be judged by God. That is the reality of this world. This is why we see so much hatred of the word of God. Because it reminds people that there is an authority higher than them. And we like to be our own authority. We like to be the the king of the castle in our own worlds. We don't like the fact that the reality is that there is something higher than us. So we reject it, we deny it, we search for intellectual objections, we search for emotional objections, and oftentimes it's because we don't want to change our lives. Listen to the words of the atheist Thomas Nagel. He says, it isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief, it's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. And he's still alive. He wrote this book just a a couple of years back, and he was roundly castigated by his atheist followers for admitting something like this but I could give you quotes from many atheists saying the same sort of thing you see the reality is the universe is like that and God is real yet I would say if I was talking to the two young girls growing up it's important you understand who God is you see we live in a culture where it's very easy to reshape God it's very easy to take away bits of God that we don't like to bring him down to our level so that we can be excused with various things that we're doing. We want to make him fit with our lives. We lower him to make him more palatable, because we don't want to offend people. And often we do this by wrapping him up in religious traditions. We've all seen religious traditions. You see, what we saw today as a dedication, it's not a religious ceremony. There's no right that that it supposedly confers some spiritual benefit upon those children, which is what many religions would teach for these sorts of things. Tradition's not always bad, but it can be bad when it's used wrongly. You see, ultimately, the only thing that matters, the only thing that can impart spiritual benefit is whether or not you've accepted Christ into your life, because as he said, he is life. And unless you've accepted Christ into your life, the state of affairs is, you haven't really found the meaning of life. When King Solomon dedicated the temple in Jerusalem, you go to Israel today, You see that area of land with that big golden mosque on it. Before that mosque was there, there used to be a Jewish temple, which is this temple that we're talking about here. They still call it the Temple Mount, and underneath it, as they excavate underneath it, they find things going back to the first, second centuries of Jewish history. Coins, pottery, all sorts of things. When he was dedicating that first temple all those years ago, he said this. He turned, he lifted his hands, and he prayed over the nation of Israel. He said, "'O Lord, God of Israel,' There is no God like you in heaven or on earth. You keep your covenant and you show steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all your heart. You have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hands you have fulfilled it this day. O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven and on earth. Then we jump forward to the first century. Jesus had just been born into this world and his parents wanted to dedicate him. So they brought him to the temple. Luke chapter 2, it says when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, present there's the word dedicate. Even Jesus, as a baby, in obedience to God's word, was brought to the temple to give him back, dedicate him to the Lord. And as they came into the temple, they met a, a man of Israel, a faithful man, who came and took Jesus in his arms. And he said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. A light for revelation to the Gentiles. You know, think about that. This was written, you know, first century AD about a Jewish boy that was born. But yet today, as I was saying... In all of these Gentile nations... Gentile just means not Jewish, basically. So all the the other nations of the world. We see people who have been drawn to that light and given their lives to Jesus Christ. Again, there's no precedent for that in history. There's no reason why that should be the case unless there is something different about Jesus. There's no reason. You can't really explain any other reason why that has happened. And not just once. Millions upon millions of times for the last 2,000 years. You see... He is the one true God and the one true God is revealed in the pages of scripture and he is revealed as the creator God, the one who literally spoke the heavens into existence by the word of his power and he is the one who holds all things together. He's described as being eternal, no beginning, no end, immortal, holy, righteous and he is called the Lord of hosts. He is said to be seated above all thrones, all principalities, all powers, every other authority that we have in this world, none of them compare to the Lord. Yet at the same time, he's said to be a covenant-keeping God. That is one who is faithful to keep his word to a thousand generations. It says he's compassionate, graceful, and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and faithfulness. This is the God we find revealed in Scripture. But yet if we go through the whole Bible, we find out that it's not only that. We find this same God was the one who was willing to leave the throne room of glory, to come into this world, blood and water, young Jewish maiden in a backwater province of the Roman Empire in Israel at that time he lived a life in poverty he was accused when he grew up when he started preaching his father's mission beaten, mocked, scorned, spat at and ultimately suffered that shameful death hanging naked for hours on a Roman cross and he did that because God sent him and he volunteered for us And even with his last breaths, he uttered words of forgiveness for those people. The famous words, if you've grown up in a Christian school, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You see, but it is this one who still had the victory, because the story does not end there. This is why we don't, you know, when we have crosses, we don't keep Jesus on the cross, because that's not the end of the story. The story was three days later, he rose again. He was declared to be the Son of God by power through the resurrection of the dead. And he has been exalted now back to the highest place where he first came from heaven after destroying the work and all the principalities and powers in this earth. And he is now given the name above all names. And it says that one day every knee will bow to the name of Jesus. And do we do that voluntarily? Or one day will it be because when we stand in front of someone who is so holy and so righteous that we're forced to our knees, You see this sometimes in the scripture where God reveals himself in in all his glory and and men can't comprehend it and they just fall down to the floor. This is the sort of thing we're talking about. We need to recapture that image of God. We need to make sure that we have not wrapped him up in religious tradition, that we have not brought him down, that we're not making God in our own image. That's the first thing God said to the Israelites. Do not make God in your own image. You have to accept me as I have revealed myself to you. You see, this is this God who is true and living and he is still active and working in the world today and it is this God who loves us and this is why so many are willing to give everything they have for him. Let me tell you a story, another story of a woman called Lottie Moon. She was a very wealthy Virginia native yet she she left her wealthy estate at age 33 to China to serve as a missionary with the Southern Baptist Convention. Any any Southern Baptist or Baptist you may have heard of Lottie Moon. At Christmas they bake what they called Lottie Moon cookies. You see, she was out there alone. Obviously, women missionaries were not hugely supported at this time in the world. And one Christmas time, she decided she needed some support, so she wrote a letter back to the Southern Baptist Convention asking the ladies of the Southern Baptist Convention to support her. She needed three, three helpers, really, to raise funds. And she raised the funds and she got her help. But well, little did she know that passion for missionary work would start what is called the annual Christmas offering for the Southern Baptist Convention. That first letter from her faith, would grow to become the largest support for missionaries in the entire world today, every single year. The Southern Baptist Convention is a huge organisation obviously now, but every year, and they call this offering that they do every year the Lottie Moon Christmas Offering, in honour of this one girl who went to China on her own and did more than most people had ever done. Now what's interesting about her story, she died on the way back to America of starvation, penniless, and emancipated, just cut off from everyone, and she was just quite a sight, apparently. Now, we may think, you know, that's too far. What, everyone wants to know what had happened to her, because she was kind of, you know, a hero in some respects. She was in China during a lot of the, the wars and the last great famine of China, and she would not accept her own rations, And she would always give her rations to the children that she'd taken into her home. And because of that, she literally starved herself to death. Now, we may think that's too far. That's stupid. That's ridiculous. That's way too radical. We don't want to be like that. You know, it certainly defies any sort of evolutionary arguments about human flourishing and, you know, survival of the fittest and that sort of thing. This was sacrificial love to the highest degree. She literally gave everything she had in service to Christ to show his love to those who had not encountered it before, right down to her very life. And she knew this, and she she was willing to do this because her life was not her own. Because as we had dedicated those children, she had dedicated herself to God before that. You see, this is the interesting thing. When we talk about love, it comes from a Hebrew word, ahava. That word comes from a root that means to give. That is what love means, to give. To give. You see, in our culture, generally, love is kind of twisted. We often think about how does it make us feel? Do we feel good? We feel good being in a relationship. We feel good being married. We feel good having all these things. Love is to make you feel good. Love is to give. That is the meaning. A giving of yourself for another, for the best interests of another, regardless of the cost. And she gave everything. And in so doing, she displayed the love of the Father in an amazing way. Her life is like a gospel message. You see, the most famous verse in the Bible, I'm sure many of you know it, John 3:16. What does it say? For God so loved the world that he gave. That's what it is. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish. That is the message of the gospel. That is the message that these women gave their lives for. That is the message that they proclaimed among the nations. That is the message that changed a lot of those nations. This is what we see. The word of God is living and active. And I would say to you today, the love of God for mankind is probably the most authenticated event of ancient history. And I say that quite seriously. Now you may be thinking, how can love be an authenticated event of ancient history? You see, in the Bible it says that God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us on the cross. That was the greatest display of God's love for mankind, available and visible to every single person. Now, if you study modern historians, when I've done this, they will tell you that the crucifixion of Jesus Christ under Pontius Pilate is the most attested, authenticated event of ancient history. And what they mean, and this is not... This is atheist scholars, sceptic scholars, liberal scholars, Jewish scholars. The only people who don't admit it are Muslim scholars because they've changed the history along the line. But everyone else agrees, and the, the consensus is Jesus was crucified in 33 AD under Pontius Pilate. Now, why do they all agree? People who thoroughly disagree on pretty much every other issue of life, they agree on that, even if they don't want to agree on that, simply because the historical attestation for the death of Christ is so strong. You know, in in historical terms, when you have kind of one source that gives you an insight into the ancient world, that's pretty good. The death of Jesus, we have six or seven sources, big sources. We have some of the best Roman historians of the time, some of the best Jewish historians of the time. On and on and on, we have it mentioned in plays and government documents, all sorts of things that Christ died under Pontius Pilate in 33 AD. And so you see, if the Bible says that the cross is the greatest demonstration of God's love for you, and the crucifixion of Christ is one of the best attested historical events, therefore you can really say that the fact that God's love you is forever one of the best attested conclusions in the world. Just studying it historically, you can say that. You see, one John four nine says, "We love, because he first loved us," and that was the great act that he gave us. You see, why the message of the cross has inspired such great acts of compassion wherever it goes, is because it speaks to the hearts and minds of men, because it was that demonstration of love, and we've seen that. You like that. Matthew Paris, that atheist, he's seen the effect of the gospel as it goes out into the world, and he's encouraged these people to do these great acts. Let me tell you another story. It's almost my last story. Two sisters, Corrie and Tetsi Ten Boom, they lived in Holland with their father during the onset of World War II. They're famous now because they've become famous because they were hiding Jews in their grandfather's, in their father's watch shop in Holland? They had a secret door that went high. At this time, obviously, you know, in in Germany and Holland, it was not safe to be a Jew. Uh, they were so they would hide them. They were a Christian family, and the father was warned by his neighbours: "You need to stop doing this." And his, respo- his response was: "If I get caught and go to prison, that would be an honour for me to go to prison and and die in protection of God's chosen people." His sisters Corrie and his daughters, rather Corrie and Betsy, they grew up with that sort of faith and they continued hiding Jews. But eventually they were caught. They were, they were, uh, someone told on them, and they were caught. They were raided by the SS, and they were sent to numerous concentration camps before eventually being transferred to the notorious women's death camp Ravensbrook. I won't go into the descriptions for the sake of, of a Sunday morning, but one of the things that you'll know about this story is that Corrie, it, through all these different camps, there was one thing that she wanted with her, and she managed to smuggle in with her through all the roll calls and the things that they went through in those places. And it was a Bible. She had a little secret thing that she smuggled on the back of her dress or the clothes that they gave her. And she, she managed to take it with her even into Ravensbrook, this little Bible. And it was, it was their lifeline. Corrie and Betsy clung to God's word as a lifeline. And in, they said the reason that they were, they were there in amongst all this pain was clear to both sisters And they said, quote, from morning until lights out, whenever we were not in ranks or in roll call, our Bible was at the center of an ever-widening circle of help. And they tell stories of having women from all nationalities crowding around them in these flea-infested barracks that they were staying in, as they would pass out the word of God to people in different languages. But as Betsy grew weaker as she finally succumbed to what they put them through, eventually she was unable to stand for roll call. And she began to speak of her plans for the future as she knew, really, death was approaching. She spoke of a a home for ex-prisoners of war in Holland where they could recuperate. And she spoke later of a place where those who were warped by such a philosophy of hate could learn to love once again. And then finally, on the day she died, she pulled Corrie down to her and whispered her last vision into her ear. And she said, we must tell them that there is no pit so deep that his love is not deeper still. They will listen to us, Corrie, because we have been here. Amazing life. Now, three days later, Corrie Ten Boom, after her sister died, Corrie Ten Boom was called into the barracks, the headquarters, and she was given a piece of paper that simply said released on it. No explanation, released, marched out the door. Fifteen years later, when she went back to Ravensbrook to the archives, She discovered that this was simply a clerical accident, or as she calls it, a miracle. Her number was supposed to be put on the list for execution. Three weeks later, everyone her age was executed in Ravensbrück. This was her legacy. She went on to fulfill her sister's vision. She started that home to rehabilitate war victims. She started that rehabilitation center in a former concentration camp for German soldiers who had done these things to her. To tell them, about God's love. Corrie started a worldwide ministry that in over 33 years took her to 60 countries proclaiming to millions of people what her sister knew and died for, that his love is indeed deeper still. You see, these are the legacies that we have of these women who dedicated their lives to God. And we ask and we think of ourselves, the legacies that we have that we pass on to our children with the way we act, the way we behave, the message that we tell them, we all want to do a good job. I know we all do. But we, as Christians, we want our lives to proclaim the reality of the gospel—that Jesus is real, He is our only hope—and we want our lives to be lived in service to Him. Some of you may know the famous evangelist Billy Graham died just recently. Um, I hope most of you know who he is. He, he was a very famous, famous evangelist for his crusades, um, preached to more people in probably anyone else uh, in, in his life. When he died, his, uh, his, will, his last will and testament was released publicly. I want to read to you the first page of it. You can go online and read it yourself. I have. Obviously, it's only the first bit that's really relevant. The rest is just all kind of legal stuff. But he says this. This is what he had his lawyers read his family. This is the first page of his will. He says, First, I commit myself wholly into the hands of my Saviour. The Lord Jesus Christ, knowing by God's word that through his shed blood my sins have been atoned for and taken away, and that through his merits I shall be presented faultless in the presence of his glory. Since I was a teenager, I have found joy and peace in believing God rather than trusting the changing opinions of men, and it has been my supreme joy to labor to his service. I acknowledge that I have often disappointed him, but he has never disappointed me. I ask my children and my grandchildren to maintain and defend at all hazards and at any cost of personal sacrifice the blessed doctrine of the complete atonement for sin through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ once offered and through that alone. And I urge all of you to walk with the Lord in a life of separation from the world and to keep eternal values in mind. I urge all who shall read this document to read and study the scriptures daily and to trust only in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. That's what he did. You may think that's too much to have a lawyer read that. That was his legacy. At his funeral, within three minutes, the name of Jesus Christ was glorified. And the name of Jesus Christ was mentioned another 90 times. That was his life. He dedicated his life to Jesus. And when we are here and we dedicate people back to God, we know because it is in God's hands that we want people's lives to be because he's the only one who can present you faultless when that day comes. He is real. That is the reality we have. That's our desire as parents, as we dedicate children, that's our desire in many other areas of life. We want people to seek the greatest treasure of all. In the Bible, it's called that pearl of great price, that indescribable gift. This is why the apostles literally went around the entire world begging people to be reconciled to God. This is what they did. This is the message. And where do we find that? We find that all coming to culmination on a Jewish man that was born the Son of God that came down to heaven and died on that cross 33 years ago, the most authenticated <coughs> event of ancient history, undeniable. The Apostle Paul writes this, he says, For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. And that is our prayer here today. As a church family, I know uh, M and Al and Tom and Francis, they want us praying, for their girls that they would grow up and they would seek his face because in it in Jesus Christ lie all the mysteries of this world and you will really find the ultimate meaning of life we seek his face one last illustration Fanny Crosby she was a songwriter she wrote over 9,000 hymns she was blind from six weeks she had an eye infection the doctor did something wrong and she was blind when she was six weeks old She was strong faith, she founded a blind school, Braille Bibles, and wrote over 9,000 hymns, amazing life. One one, one day in her life, she was playing the piano, and she heard two men talking. And they said, it's a shame that God would take away the gift of sight from such a talented woman. To which she turned and she replied to them, and she said, if I had it my way, I would have been born blind. For when I get to heaven, the first face I would ever see would be that of my saviour. That is a heart dedicated to God. Now, I know you can't understand that unless you know God. But God still has that invitation open to all of us. So I would pray, let us seek his face today. If you know him, seek him more. If you don't know him, really think about what life is, where it's going, and the things I've said today. Let's pray, and then we'll fellowship afterwards. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, so much for your word. I thank you, Lord, that you draw us to yourself that you've revealed yourself to us. You do not leave us as helpless orphans in this world. We thank you for that, Lord. And I pray now, we pray for Ellen and Ivy as they grow up. We pray for those families and the grandparents and everyone involved, Lord, that they would just be impacted and blessed by you, that you would have your hand upon them, that they would love one another, Lord. We thank you for that privilege. And Lord, I thank you for everyone in this room. We'd ask now that you just be with us as we, we go next door and we, we fellowship with one another. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. For more resources, please go to thomasfretwell.com.